from the host that brought you to Coding Westworld. And Westworld the Recapables. Comes the Ringer Prestige TV podcast on Westworld. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm Danny Heifetz. And I'm David Shoemaker. Welcome to Westworld Season 4 and the Prestige TV podcast feed, where we're going to break down every episode of Westworld Season 4. Every Monday, the day after the show comes out on the Prestige TV podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcasts, but get them on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by USAA Insurance. No matter how many times you've seen it, USAA is a crowd pleaser. That's because bundling auto with home or renters insurance saves you money. USAA understands the needs of our military veterans and their eligible family members, and they've got great rates and insurance options to meet them. See how much you can save. Tap the banner to learn more and get a quote at usaa.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm and you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, it's a certified bee corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet you can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified bee corporation and gives their hens the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. The Rewatchables is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find The Watch with Chris Ryan. You're still cracking that out? Every week, twice a week. You did you did uh, The Old Man this week with Andy, and then we did it on The Prestige. We're competing against each other. We share this passion. No, it's not competition when it's art. No, it's, it, we're elevating each other in the show. Spreading the Church of Bridges word. It is an unbelievable show. Anybody who likes the rewatchables and likes the movies we talk about, there's no fucking way you won't like the old man. So go check that out. Coming up on this podcast. 1930. Prohibitionists transform Chicago into a city at war. It is the time of the gang wards. It is the time of Al Capone. The Untouchables is next. All right, Chris, I don't know where to start with this. I guess we could start here. It's 35 years since this movie came out. We could go De Palma. We could go Costner. We could go Connery. We could go this weird point De Niro was at. I do think, though, there's a prototype with this movie that resembles football to me, mm. where just a lot of elements have to come into place. But the best thing is, like when the Chiefs had Mahomes on a rookie contract, it's like, wow, this is great. This is the biggest advantage you can have. The Untouchables has Costner on a rookie contract. <laughs> this is, he is going to be the biggest star of the world two years later, but we don't know that in 1987 yeah. and when they're filming this in 86. So you have him on a rookie deal and then you can spray the money around. You can get to Palma. You can get De Niro for 18 days. You can get Connery. You can get David Mamet to write the script. 
But the key is Costa on the rookie deal. And, and you still got your scouting department out there finding Andy Garcia's in the fifth round. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Watching 8 million ways to die tape and being like, I love this guy. This is just the prototypical. This is how you do a movie. They were worried at the time that it was over budget. There's actually in the first ever issue of Premiere Magazine, they have an untouchable shot by shot thing and a Costner thing. And a lot of what they talk about, which we'll get into later, is the movie was actually like they were worried it was too expensive. It was over 20 million. Now you look back, it's like, wow, what a bargain. This is like a $100 million movie they made for 20 million. Not only what a bargain, but also, I mean, it goes across the board beyond even the big names that we just mentioned, where when you watch a movie like this, you're seeing like every single part of what goes into making a movie at its absolute best. Yeah. Like the cinematography is great. The outfits are amazing. The production design is amazing. I, th I know that stuff isn't like that, like fun to talk about, but it is kind of like this is when Hollywood was really Hollywooding. Like they really made, and when you watch it still to to, to this day, there's some slower parts of it. But goddamn, this is a really, really, really entertaining movie that just delivers like every single time. I love just being like, where are we? Did we get to Canada yet? I'm in. Well, you think 1987, Capone still matters from a storytelling standpoint in a way that I don't think he matters now. That's, you know, you're going back 57 years at that point. It's the equivalent now. It's 2022 if we went back to around 1967. Yeah. And that doesn't seem that long ago. There were guys on the set who had worked on the, on the Capone case. Like there were still dudes around who had been like, yeah, I remember this. Right. So you have that piece. You also have, this was a really important TV show. No, that doesn't matter now in 2022, but in the 1960s, it was a show that people knew. So they had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a drift from that, but then they go and get De Palma, who's on a great run. And then you get the De Niro piece at a time when people weren't a hundred percent thinking that way of like, we're going to get this awesome actor, but he's not going to be in the movie this much. I would I might even think this was the first time somebody thought this way and executed it for a big budget movie. I was trying to think, did anybody do that before? Like terms of endearment, yeah, Jack I was Nicholson, say, maybe? Nicholson in terms of endearment was like an example of like, I mean, it's to some extent, they did it a little bit with Brando. I mean, Brando's in Godfather a lot, right. but it was kind of like, we're going to, we're going to get this guy. I guess Brando was a little bit of a distressed asset at the time, but he was. It, it was kind of like, what if we populate this movie with these young up and coming actors and then have these this heavyweight champion in his twilight kind of in there? I wouldn't say that De Niro was anywhere in his twilight in 1987, but it it's a pretty genius idea to take Costner and basically have this guy who's embodying Gary Cooper and Jimmy Stewart at the same time. Yeah. And then and then have him buttressed by these two huge, huge personalities in Connery and De Niro. Like you don't usually see a movie star willing to get like worked off the screen like that. Yeah. But at the time he hadn't had a big hit yet. So he, he was, you know, this was a huge break for him. But for I kind of wonder, I wonder, cause when we get to casting, what ifs, I wonder whether that scared off some of the people who were up for Elliot Ness were like, it's not really his movie. Yeah. For De Niro. So he had raging bull in 81 wins the Oscar or 80 wins the Oscar. Everyone's like, that's the guy. And then, like, his next seven films aren't awesome. He does True Confessions, King of Comedy, which I think the movie nerds love. The movie didn't do that well. Once Upon a Time in America, which is way too long, but it's a pretty interesting movie. And I know your guy, Jimmy Woods. Director's Cut movie, yeah. Yeah. Falling in Love did not work. Him and Meryl Streep. 
Brazil, some people love it. The Mission, eh. Angel Heart, which I know you and I love, but it's, it's kind of amazing he's even in that movie. It's like he owed somebody a favor. Um, so this is the cocaine 80s, right? And who knows what kind of issues De Niro had, but just in general, the parts and the choices and the movies, they're all over the place. And movies are changing, too. Movies are changing. Coming out of the 70s, and he's he's the man in the late 70s and the early 80s with Scorsese and Coppola and, and doing everything. And he's he's arguably, you know, the biggest, best actor in the world. And then, like, you know, we start to get more of a blockbuster culture and I think he starts doing a little bit more mainstream stuff, Angel Heart aside. I think it was starting to slip a little bit for him. Because we're talking, you know, six years here of like, De Niro's the best actor. By 87, it's like, is he? Like, what's he done lately? That starts to drift into Hollywood, right? You start getting passed by bigger people. At that point, Harrison Ford is really taking off. And there's some other A-plus listers. Pacino is having the same. Pacino's doing a lot of stage stuff. Yeah, um, this is his Nicholson. Like in the wilderness years, right? Yeah, Nicholson feels like he has the championship belt at that point. Clint is still massive. Um, Burt Reynolds has faded at that point. The action stars have taken over with Sly Stallone and Arnold. That's become yeah. a whole thing. And then Michael Douglas and that generation is starting to come up. And Michael Douglas had a huge 86. So I think De Niro needed this movie. And this jump starts him. Now he's got Midnight Runs coming, um, Cape Fear. And it's just like that second phase of the De Niro thing. It's kind of crazy that he's not in this movie that much. I yeah. always forget that when I watch it. it but it, it, they do such a great job. He's the shark from Jaws. Like he's yep. just lurking out there and it's just like you are never not terrified of him. You never don't believe that Capone could do anything. And But they don't have to overuse him. I kind of think that like, what's he in four scenes, five scenes in this movie? It seems like five scenes, yeah. It's perfect. It's the perfect amount. Then you have Connery who's in the middle of the Connery Assance, mm -hmm. which starts with the Bond movie in 83. He's in Highlander. He's in Name of the Rose, which I think is a really good movie. The Untouchables, The Presidio, which I know you like. I like The Presidio. Indiana Jones 3. And th as that's going through, Connery just has this whole resurgence. He wins the Oscar for this. We'll litigate that later in the podcast. But um, they catch him. This was... James Bond forever. And then it kind of dies in the 70s for him a little bit. And then the Renaissance happens. This has become, I think, one of the four most important Connery movies. I'm not sure that should be the case, but he's super likable in it. The accent, I don't want to talk about it now. We'll save it for later. The accent is just so bad that it's hard to rewatch this movie and not be like, wow, what were they thinking? Why didn't they just make him Scottish? I, it is. It's, so it's like, Obviously, he has to be Irish because of the Irish population of Chicago and I the get cops it. or whatever. It was, I don't know if there was a lot of Scottish cops. Maybe there were. But, I mean, it's so funny that the second half of his career, probably the two definitive roles are this and Red October. And in both of those, it's just like a Scottish guy pretending to be Lithuanian <laughs> and a Scottish right. guy pretending to be Irish. Two of the worst accent movies. At least in Red October, they're like... They do a trick so that none of the accents are supposed to matter. But like yeah. Sam ne Sam Neill is still speaking with like a Russian accent. And, right. and he, Connery just sounds like he's teeing off at the old course. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the charisma is there. Oh, and, God. you know, it's he magnetic. gets his famous he's, death scene. I, he's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So you, you kind of, you learn to overlook the accent as the movie goes. You know, it's like the ugly jump shot. Everything else is there. It's He's great except for the accent. Another thing that he does in this, and it, this is it's it's super impressive watching this over and over again. He's really good at mammoth. Yeah, 
So Mamet's the secret spice in this movie. Let's talk about him. Okay, so he is an up-and-coming and Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright at the time. He's written Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, he's about to make his own first movie, House of, uh, House of, House of Games. Games. But he comes in, they were going to have Wendy Wasserstein write this script, and then they, they have uh, Mamet do it. And I think he's like, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like everybody in this movie, I think it wasn't like, oh, this is a paycheck job. They were like, let's make the most entertaining movie we possibly can. And there's just enough mammotisms in this so that your ears perk up, but it yep. never like gets in the way of the movie and becomes so obtuse that you don't understand what's going on. I think there's a lot of lessons that came from this movie that were then applied to the next 35 years of movies. Like we mentioned the rookie QB thing. Like, I think the mentality really until right around the time of this movie was that you needed to put a giant star on the poster. And But this this movie showed you could build around the star. Batman eventually does it, even though Keaton was a star. It wasn't really, he wasn't a massive star. He wasn't as Nicholson, big as Nicholson. was a star. Yeah. Batman was a star. And then they've, Keaton, it didn't really matter who it was. And I think Superman, you could say, did that in, in 1978 with Christopher Reeve where they built, a, they did kind of the same blueprint of they built around him. But for the most part, I think this movie, with that, with how important the screenwriter was, with how important the director was, it got it got Hollywood back to its roots a little bit. And I do think this is right when the whole movie culture is starting. When people, you know, like although I I wasn't really there yet. It wasn't until kind of after college, but or last tail end of college. But people really started to think about how these movies were made. Yeah, and how where the meat was bought. Who was cooking it? Just things right. I don't, I just don't feel like they cared about that stuff in the seventies. It was like, oh, Jaws. I don't think even most people knew who directed it. But if it was starting to shift around the time of this movie, yeah, I think that movies are starting to take over probably a large, like a different role in culture and like the making of movies with the media around it is starting mm. to explode a little bit more. And yet, you still have like a little bit of chance taking. I mean, it's a chance to take to put De Palma in charge of this movie. Yeah, we should we should talk about him. The David Mamet, though, he's one of those guys. I, he's as famous as a playwright as a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a rare territory where somebody did both of those. Usually, it's one or the other, right? But I, he was always a name you heard as like the just incredibly well respected kind of constructionist of scripts and plays and. Sometimes that just doesn't work in movies. It's rare. So there's there's been it's Mamet, Sorkin, Tony Gilroy. I'm sure I'm like Quentin Tarantino, obviously, but you know, dialogue Goldman. writers. Well, so Goldman, I wouldn't say, is known for his dialogue. Oh, yeah, you're like, right. I, I mean, point. I think yeah, yeah. Goldman's more of like a like he's really good at constructing story. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think he's a great dialogue writer, but he doesn't have a distinctive signature the way Mamet has the repetitions of words. Yeah, good point. And, uh, you know, Sorkin obviously has the barrage of overlapping dialogue. So it's 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 kind of amazing to see Mamet take his inimitable style and format it into this, like, very, very Hollywood movie. So he's got, for the people listening, he did, um, he got, an, he did Postman Always Rings Twice. That was his first one, which, um. I think as a movie, people decided it didn't work, but now I think it's a little more interesting because of the actors, Jessica Nick, Nick, uh, Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lang. He wrote The Verdict, got an Academy Award for that. Yeah. I think that was the one people were like, holy shit, what the fuck is this? Who's this guy? Yeah. He does The Untouchables. He has Hoffa. He has The Edge, 
a movie that will be on the rewatchables at some point. Wag the Dog, Ronan, we've already done, and did Hannibal. Um, and then he started directing too. But he had a really good run of screenplays there that I think really were distinct. Like he's to me a cover the byline guy where you could cover the byline and be like, oh, I know who this is. If you also if you turn on Heist, as soon as Gene Hackman and Delroy Lindo start talking, you're like, this is a David Mamet movie. Yeah. You know? So you have that piece. Makes sense. The De Palma piece was a little more interesting. This is so awesome. It's just so cool. We've have we done a De Palma movie because I think we did the first love, Mission Impossible, but I don't know if you were on that. He has Carrie and Dress to Kill and Blowout and Scarface and Body Double, which to me are all like just absolute rewatchables. I've seen all of those movies. I love Blowout. I can't believe we haven't done it on the rewatchables yet. Scarface, obviously, we'll be doing that at some point. Dress to Kill was a phenomenon in the summer of 1980. Uh, Body Double, yeah. I absolutely love Body Double. Me too. I love it. I think that movie is so good. But he, by that time, he's taking shit like, oh, you're just ripping off Hitchcock. Fuck you. Right. And especially with Body Double, that was when it was like, no, fuck you, dude. You're you're too close. You're. This was a became a Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam type of situation, <laughs> where now you look back and you're like, man, Stone Temple Pilots. They yeah. Great every songs, once but in a while, they fucking rip off Interstate Love Song, and you're like, damn. Yeah, like, man, this group was banging. And this, I mean, I would I would not say that De Palma is the Stone Temple Pilots of Hitchcock, but I do think that Untouchables is his is his Interstate Love Song. But and I it think was, he's just very, he's like, for somebody who is so distinctive and so like, such a stylist, it's amazing to watch him apply that to things like this, to Scarface, to Carlito's Way, to like yeah. these big sweeping, you know, crime dramas. Well, he gets the signature eight minute scene in the train station. That feels the most me. But I, I think... What's interesting about his movies, and you even go back to Carrie, there, there's a real sexuality to them. Uh, what a perv. Yeah. Like he, he's super pervy. You know, dressed to kill Angie Dickinson. She's going to town on herself in the shower, you know, after. Her. And then that the first 25 minutes of that movie is kind of incredible. Like, like that whole, in the art museum, when she feels like she's being followed by this guy, but the guy really just wants to fuck her. And it becomes like this cat and mouse game in the art gallery. And he was just, he was doing stuff that I don't really feel like I've seen in movies. Body double, same thing. When all of a sudden it becomes a Frankie goes to Hollywood video and you're like, what's happening in this movie? I know. Yeah. I mean, he's able to also just ring style and like pure cinema out of scenes, right? Like, so yeah. like obviously the, the Odessa steps, Potemkin homage and, and untouchables. We'll talk about it at length, but you know, I mean, just like these wandering crane shots, steady cam shots, voyeuristic shots, like, and, and it'll be like in a random scene, like in Carlito's way, it's like Pacino watching Penelope Ann Miller from across the, from the roof across from her apartment building. And it just adds like a, a level of psychology to his movies that probably ordinarily wouldn't be there if any other director did them. Yeah. It's weird to say a director is better at just being a visual director than other people. But he is one of the best of it at, in my lifetime. Like Body Double is basically, it's a movie about people watching other people, right? And the way they use that house, which by the way, if you drive on Sunset, if you, anyone who lives in LA, the Body Double house is still on that street. Yeah. I always almost get in a car accident every time I'm driving by it. It's just like <laughs> an amazing piece of real estate. And in the in the actual movie, it's, you know, they took more liberties with it, but just- 
he does these things where you can just see them in your head after the fact, which I think is really hard to do. But, you know, Hitchcock had such a shadow at that point. Anybody who dabbled in the in the Hitchcock world, people just it made them mad. And I and you go back and you read some of the reviews of his work and it, it was the recurring theme. It was like, fuck you. I think my thing about this is when you watch Untouchables, it's it's almost like looking at the the ingredients label of uh like a like a great recipe, like a great piece of food, like a dish, because you realize like all the layering of things that is happening to make you have an emotional reaction. Like it's yeah. the camera is going up and the Ennio Morricone music is coming in and everybody is wearing Armani suits and Sean Connery is leading these guys across the street on a liquor raid and you're like, why what why is my heart rate going up? And it's like because yeah. they know what they're doing. They know how to cut. They know how to move the camera. They know how to light it. They know how to act it. It's it's really, really professional. What's your favorite De Palma movie? Is it Carlito's Way? It is, isn't it? It's up there. I I feel weird not picking one of the psychosexual early 80s movies, like not picking Dress to Kill or Body Double, but I think it might be Carlito's. The one I've seen the most, I think, is Scarface. I don't even think that's close. The one I admire the most, I think, is Blowout. I think Blowout's amazing. I actually think that movie has become more and more amazing. We should absolutely do it at some point on on this pod with with Sean. Um, great movie would be an even better prestige prestige TV show. Now it's probably my favorite Travolta performance, other oh, than Saturday Night Fever. Uh, this, I think it's his in, second best. This and Pulper are it for me. Might be one of the great Philly movies. Oh yeah, like really sure. uses Philly strategically. Anyway, uh, De Palma to me, I, I don't know where. People have him ranked, but to me, he's like Hall of Famer. I love his library and uh, I really respect him. And this is probably, I would say, the most successful movie he did other than Mission Impossible, right? Mission mm-hmm. Impossible's got to be one. But, you know, with this and Mission Impossible, he proved, no, no, I don't have to just be like the perv. And, or even Scarface, I guess that's not a, it's a little pervy. The stuff with with Tony and his sister gets a yeah. little, I don't know what they're going for there in a couple of the scenes, but. What What's the matter, Tony? You want to <laughs> fuck me? Uh, asking me where I am on Scarface is like asking me where I am on like cheeseburgers or pizza. <laughs> I fucking love Scarface. I was just watching the other day. The the chainsaw scene, I think, is still like all time. Manny's just, he's flirting with girls. He's down to, it's all of it. And it's shot the way they use South Beach. That movie's amazing. Yeah. You're, I, now I want to go watch like five De Palma movies right after. Oh this. my god, body double for the people listening. I would, I would honestly just go in order. I would go Carrie, Dress to Kill, Blowout, Scarface, Body Double, and Untouchables. I, you could do I, a I, lot I, worse. Yeah. yeah, you could just go and watch the evolution of him. Body Double has the in- insane Melanie Griffith performance, which it was like just catapulted. She became a super duper star because of that movie. So you have that. Then you have the costume piece of this where he never been in a hit movie. And he was one of those guys who was like, when's it going to happen for him? And he gets cut out of the big show most famously. He's in Fandango and he's in Silverado and he's in American Flyers, a movie that I absolutely love that I think is one of the great underrated sports movies. Love that movie. But it's just not happening. And then 87 becomes the year of Costner. He's this and no way out. And he's an A-plus lister after that. So they hire him off of getting to see Silverado before it comes out. Yep. Lawrence Kasdan. And one of my favorite parts about Untouchables that I want to talk about is that they kind of conceived of this movie as a Western. Yeah. You know, it's basically like the two lawmen 
in a corrupt town trying to hold off the big bad. And so they saw this quality in Costner in Silverado and they were like, he can, he can be Ness, like the cowboy version of Ness that we want. I would say young Costner brought probably every single thing to the table that you're looking for if you're trying to lead a movie with somebody. Yeah. Like but th- he's in the running for most handsome. He's most charismatic. He doesn't have the sense of humor in this movie, but it comes out later. You believe him in the action scenes. I don't feel like he's going to get his ass kicked, but I also feel like he's he's not invincible. Like somebody like, uh, I don't know, if John Cena was in this movie, you'd be like, ah, is John Cena really in danger? Um, just everything about it, the way he relates to people, um, it's all here. And I, I it's kind of hard for me to believe that he wasn't the one nominated for this movie instead of Connery. I think he's, quite good in this. It's also like the origin of a lot of Costner moves. Like there yes. are a couple like oh, yeah. voice breaking, you know, like his exasperation, his like, uh, the way he kind of reacts to very emotional moments. He does a lot over the years in Field of Dreams. The playbook. Like can, yeah, it's kind of the playbook. You know, the only time I can kind of remember this happening again after Untouchables, I'm sure there are other examples, but it really does remind me of um, what happened with McConaughey where he did dazed it's a bit part but it kind of goes viral for what viral was at the time and then he does lone star and off of like kind of those things he gets a time to kill which is here here's a john grisham movie you're going to be in the biggest movie of the summer you know it's it doesn't happen that much very often very often i thought it was going to happen to tyler parker after um we did take hunter but it just Maybe it'll I think still he's, happen. He's I don't still know. mulling a lot of offers. He's thinking about doing body double too. <laughs> Slow bird. But yeah, Costner, you think like there's this new generation of lead actor starting right around now, right? Bruce Willis is coming. Costner. Cruz is now an adult and now he's he's, he's in the mix gun. for all these yeah. different things. Denzel is coming. So you just have this whole new generation. And yeah, Denzel's nominated this year, right? For Cry yep. Freedom. Right. So Everything's about to change. We don't really fully see that yet, but you know, in the premiere magazine, the first one, they have the two-page Costner feature, big handsome picture of him, and it's all about like this guy's been waiting for this moment. Could this be the year of Costner? And it's hilarious to reread when you re- reread these old magazine things, and it's like, could this be the year for him? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it, it it actually turned out pretty well for this guy. Yeah. He he's about to go on uh, one of the great decade runs of of A-list movie thing we have. It, it's kind of cool when you get to see people in roles like this. And I think about this with Garcia a lot in this movie cuz it's a nothing part. Yeah. But you're like, "Oof, this guy's got a lot of heat." Yeah. On his fastball. It, like And that is, leads to Godfather 3 and Internal Affairs for him. Yeah. He's like, "Oh, Internal Affairs. Oh boy." They were doing that this summer. <laughs> Roger Ebert wasn't as enchanted. He gave it two and a half stars. He said Chicago's bootlegging battles were already alleged by the 1930s when Warner Brothers turned them into the gangster movie industry. Directors have been struggling ever since to invest them with life and free them from cliches. And then he says the best film about the era remains the uncut original version of Sergei Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. Well, I'm not positive I agree because this movie's held up way better, I think, than Once Upon a Time in America. It also feels different from a lot of gangster movies. Ironically, the name of this podcast is The Rewatchables. This movie became a fucking banger of a rewatchable. Yes. This was, within a year of it comes out, it's on HBO and all those channels. And it's just like, oh, they're going to go to Canada, all right. 
oh, the baby carriage scene is coming up. I'll stay. Yeah. And you're it in just, the, you're in the it. other room. All of a sudden you hear, da, da, da. <laughs> and you're like, what? Are they in Canada? <laughs> yeah. It's like Costner's going to have a scene with his wife. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Another scene where she's worried about him. Great. Uh, this are you, are not- you guys going to listen to the radio for a little while? <laughs> hey, could you look longingly at your newborn child? This movie was nominated for four Academy Awards. Art direction, score, costume design, best supporting actor. Connery won. He beat Albert Brooks in Broadcast News. Morgan Freeman in Street Smart. Vincent Gardenia in Moonstruck. And Denzel Washington in Craft Freedom. as Steve Biko. The Albert Brooks thing is tough. It's tough. I, I hear you, but I'm also not mad at this winning. This is, I think he's really good in this movie, the accent aside. If you can get over the accent. I can't. For, if I'm going to give you an actual Academy Award, I can't. I can't. I think Albert Brooks, we did the broadcast news one a while ago, and I just think he's so fucking good in that movie that if I had to re- redo this, I would give it to Albert Brooks. Is that but, because you don't think he sounds like a stuck Irish pig? <laughs> $25 million budget, up from 20, made $106 million. They did okay. Ebert said, uh, De Palma's Untouchables, like the TV series that inspired it, depends more on cliches than on artistic invention. Two and a half stars. Relax, Raj. Come on, Raj. Raj wasn't seeing the forest through the trees on this one. Like, great script, really inventive filmmaking, and some good actors. Like, settle down, Raj. So it should have been three stars. I'm upset. I don't know how you, I, I don't know. There's like four sequences in here where I'm like, I don't know how you watch these and say it's a two and a half star movie. Agree. Paul and Kale, who I think I'm going to start weaving into the rewatchables a little bit, who I think did some of the best, obviously some of the best movie writing ever, but some of the best essay writing ever from that yeah. era. Yeah. But also like her taste was all over the place and she would love certain things. Other things. Her take on this was not a great movie. It's too banal. Too morally comfortable. The great gangster pictures don't make good and evil mutually exclusive the way they are here, but it's a great audience movie, a wonderful pot boiler. I think that's a good way to put it. A great audience movie. I yeah. agree. And I also think that she's onto something with the morality of the movie, which we can talk about, but there's essentially like, it, the idea is that like to beat Capone, you've got to be Capone. And that's, yeah. what, that's what Jimmy is telling Ness. And Ness is like, well, I, I don't want to break the law. And then he obviously does throughout the movie. Yeah. And he doesn't seem that broken up about it. And that I think is what she's looking for is a grappling with the like, are these people really that much different if this is what they have to do to beat one another? And instead it's just kind of like, you know what? Fuck it. I tossed this guy off a roof. <laughs> and he deserved it. Yeah. We'll do the categories. We're going to take a break. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring comes with a lot of chores because, you know, spring cleaning. One thing you can clean up right away, though, is your phone bill. Switch to Mint Mobile. They have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. $15 a month, that's like two streaming services. It's two sandwiches. It's like four coffees. Why wouldn't you do this? Get this new customer offer. Go to mintmobile.com slash rewatch. That's mintmobile.com slash rewatch 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $50 a month for a first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. We didn't have a ton of candy at the movies when I was growing up. Obviously, we had popcorn, then we had some of the basics, but I remember instantly gravitating toward the Twizzlers. And then ever since then, you know, you grow up, then you have kids. Guess what kids love? Twizzlers. No matter what the situation, Twizzlers is the perfect candy to relieve your boredom. While other candy can be too sweet and overpowering, Twizzlers is the perfect level of sweetness and comes in the perfect chewy twist that everyone knows and loves. So get your hands on some Twizzlers today. Most rewatchable scene. It's short, but the opening scene with Al Capone. What does he think he is doing? Uh, what I hope I'm doing, and here's where your English paper's got a point, is I'm responding to the will of the people. <laughs> <laughs> people are going to drink. You know that, I know that. We all know that. And all I do is act on that. And all this talk of bootlegging. What is bootlegging? On the boat, it's bootlegging. On Lakeshore Drive, it's hospitality. <laughs> I'm a businessman. What an intro. The overhead shot, the shaving, and the barbershop just... uh he gets nicked. Yeah. Fatter De Niro. He gets nicked. You don't know what's going to happen. All of it's great. Elliot sees Malone in the police station, smiles, and they go to church when he knows Malone's in. And just some great Connery here. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. And that's that. You want to do some Connery or are you going to wait for, till later? I just like his, his mammoting here is so elite where he's like, now what do you want to do? Are you ready to do that? I'm offering you a deal. Do you want this deal? <laughs> do you want this deal? If you're afraid of getting a rotten apple, don't go to the barrel. Get it off a tree. <laughs> Do you want to do uh, bon Bono as Sean Connery? You want to save that for later? <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. President. Are you Look afraid to get a red apple? Hey, the, the, the best line in this church scene, too, is, uh, do you know what a blood oath is? Well, you just took one. <laughs> yeah, that's it. that's what I told you when you got in the ringer. I love Andy Garcia getting hired. Just the the, the slurs getting thrown back and forth. I'm half Italian. I'm a quarter Irish. I feel like I could enjoy that the most probably out of anybody. Uh, that's all you need. One thieving wop on the team. Hey, what'd you say? <laughs> Plus, I like that I like that they did Garcia as an Italian. You'll see, you'll oh, see yeah. the Italians playing the Latinos, but rarely the Latinos going backwards and playing the Italians. I yeah, this is it. the reverse payback for Pacino getting to play a Puerto Rican gangster. <laughs> right. And then he does it again. Garcia's then in Scarface. He yeah. just becomes, somehow he's just getting Italian roles for some reason. Uh, I love the little, um, the little back pat he gives Connery. He's like, what did you say? He like taps him on the back. He's like, what did you just say? It's great. Garcia was on a great run here of just hothead parts. Yeah. This, Godfather, Internal Affairs, Black Rain, where it's like, he, he, the only person who can... Uh, Screw things up for this guy is the guy himself. His temper. It's too red-blooded. Very Sonny Corleone-ish. You stinking Irish shit pig is just great. 
<laughs> Which is great. I said that you're a lion member of a no good race. <laughs> the 1930s are really something. <laughs> the uh, It's short, but the Capone baseball bat scene, I think, yeah, became the iconic. most, the second most famous scene from this movie. Looks, throws, catches, hustles, part of one big team. Bats himself to live long day, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, and so on. <laughs> this team don't field. What is he? Uh, you follow me? No one. Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and so on. <laughs> this team don't field. What is he? I get nowhere unless the team wins. Did did you want more? Did you want to see more of the baseball bat beating? I guess we couldn't unless this was rated R, which it I isn't. think it's like their reaction is is you get the one real melon pop and yeah. then everybody else's reaction. So I think it's I'm fine with it. When we get to Canada, I mean we could do the whole I, I think that Canada stuff's a little clumsy, but I still like it. But I love when uh, Malone does the fake murder to get the witness to talk when he picks up the dead guy <laughs> and he shoots him. It's so good. I don't know if I've seen that in another movie. I think they invented this. Or if they they did, it would be after. Do you not like them rushing the bridge? I do. I think it's a little clumsy. Uh, I guess so. I mean, I just think that that's like, he just gets to make a we the Western right there. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. It's and just, when Jimmy's like, oh, hell, you gotta die of something. <laughs> there's good lines. There's some drama, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like, I bet if De Palma watches this movie now, there's some stuff maybe, he, it just feels very I, I have not a De Palma. For it, you know yes, what I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah. The elevator death of Charles Martin Smith and touchable on the elevator, written in blood. All in one really shot. Good. So really good. good. Where do you stand on the Connery assassination scene? <laughs> Isn't that just like a wop? Brings a knife to a gunfight. Get out of here, you daggle bastard! Go on, get your ass out of here! It's a little long, but it's really, I mean, I, I, I mean, I have a lot of questions about his ability to keep all the blood inside of his body just until those guys arrive. But yeah, it, it's, it's pretty powerful. I remember the first time I saw it being absolutely like my jaw was on the floor. Yeah. What's age the worst for this movie is just being completely shocked that they killed off Connery. You think that's age the worst? Well, just in 1987 being oh, shocked right. now, you know, it's coming. You know right. what I mean? Get out of here, you Dago bastard. <laughs> Dago. That that word, uh, it left about 25 years ago, but that word was around in the yeah. 70s and 80s in a real way. The baby gunfight scene. The train station, yeah. Masterpiece. It's, I mean, he and he literally lifts it from Sergei Eisenstein from Battleship Potemkin, then the Odessa Step sequence. But So my favorite thing about this is that they had basically run out of money. Yeah. And De Palma said, you know, paraphrase or apocryphal or whatever, he said, get me a baby carriage, a clock, and some steps. So he, <laughs> the Premier Magazine, which is not online, but I have, and they have the whole shot-by-shot -shot thing about this scene, and they explain how it played out this way. They ran out of money. It was a... The original idea was this big train scene with Capone's henchman, the bookkeeper, trying to leave by train. 
and Ness and those guys showing up at the train station, stop the train, big shootout on the train. And the the train itself, just to build to look like the 1930s, was going to cost 200000 Yeah. Not to mention all the other stuff. So it was going to be, you know, a couple million bucks for the scene. And they were, the budget was too high. So they were like, we can't do this. Mammoth's directing House of Games, can't do the rewrite. So De Palma's like, I got this. And he actually did. He had it. But yeah. this could have gone terribly. Yeah. So Mammoth's he's like, like why Wait, don't what? we do we do the sequence from the one of their great masterpieces of world cinema? I'll just reshoot that. Right. And Mammoth's like, wait, what? With the train scenes out? That was one of my best scenes. But um, it somehow all worked out. So there you go. Garcia sliding across and throwing him the gun. Also, the way they use slow motion, which doesn't always work in movies, I think sometimes can go pretty badly. It's really good. Yeah, he's got like some peck and paw moves in there and and the the sliding across, tossing the gun, stopping the baby carriage and getting perfect aim on that guy is like burned into my memory. Ness throwing uh, Nitty off the roof, the whole, the whole roof scene. Yeah. If there's a nitpick, it's like he probably shoots him. He's plenty of reason to shoot him. I don't think any jury convicts him. Maybe take him down, but uh, it takes takes a lot, but then he finally does it. Any other uh, rewatchable scenes for you? Uh, I, I mean, they're minor. I really like when uh, Malone and Ness meet for the first time on the bridge. Wait a minute. What the hell kind of police you have in this goddamn city? Huh? What do they teach you? You just turned your back on an armed man. You're a treasury officer. Yeah, how do you know that? I just told you I was. Who would claim to be that? Who was not? Hmm? Yeah. He's just like, why did you? I just told you I was a treasury officer. And he's like, well, who would lie about that? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, you got them all. I, I, I actually really enjoy the courthouse stuff at the end. The, uh, Me too. Switching the juries and, you know... The, you know, nothing but a lot of talk and a badge stuff, the the final confrontation between Ness and Capone. But you got him. And I think we both know what the most rewatchable scene is. Yeah. Not a lot of not a lot of Patty Clarkson scenes in most rewatchable scenes, I noticed. <laughs> She's coming up. What's age the best? Prohibition. Great times. <laughs> Great times How do you think for you content. Fared during prohibition. Great times for content. A lot of stuff going on. Yeah. People moving liquor. People have ha some of the LA houses, especially the ones like in the Hancock Park area and the old Hollywood, they have like these prohibition panels and, you know, they would have these, they would have to hide the liquor, even if you're having the party. So they would have almost like you would have a safe hiding money. They would have things to hide liquor. Um, in general, I'm always fascinated by prohibition. It's almost a hundred years ago now where this happened, where they just decided we got to get rid of alcohol. I don't know if you saw the news today, but um, Joe Biden is going to try and take like almost all of the nicotine out of cigarettes. So I'm going to I'm going to start selling full nicotine cigarettes out of my house. <laughs> Cigarette <laughs> prohibition. <laughs> Biden's really doing that. I don't I mean, I don't know what's going to pass. Al Capone is another what's age the best. Great bad guy. One of the great bad guys we've had. I also uh, what's age the best is De Niro is just doing Trump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just like him holding court in opulent apartment buildings. He's at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. The comedy of Connery's bad accent aged the best. It's actually spectacular how 
<laughs> how not Irish it is. I always enjoy it. I, it's also going to come up in one stage the worst. The credit in the beginning, Wardrobe by Giorgio Armani has aged the best. That's just like, what a mic drop. Hey, we got Armani to do all the clothes here. Uh, the 1930s clothes and hats, great. Young Costner, most hairy, sad, I think, in a movie. Really nice. Other than the, the postman and, and dances, yeah. The bad guy played by Billy Drago. Great bad guy face. Yeah. Could have seen him in a couple other things. I wonder why he wasn't like, could he have been the husband and sleeping with the enemy? He's, I mean, he's, he has a very long career as a character actor after this. What a, a really amazing life. Like a really interesting, interesting character. But yeah, he does like a bunch of Westerns. I think he's on TV after this. Oh, what's age the best is, so for us, Heat, the movie that launched this podcast, we've done three. They have the line here. This is a dead man talking to me, Jimmy, which I think Michael Mann just cribbed, right? I was I was going to say too, I thought you were going to say this. This They basically preheat, they heatify the Ness Capone relationship. Yes. Where it's like, you've got the two adversaries who only meet, they, they get to meet twice in this movie, but really only briefly. Would you have gone diner scene for them? That would be great. Those, those two in the Italian restaurant that the Untouchables are in earlier. <laughs> There's a flip side to that coin. <laughs> what if I have to take you down, Al? I like the concept of getting your own crew and trusting absolutely nobody else because this is how we founded The Ringer, right? You drafted right out of the academy? Yeah, I just I was like, I got I to gotta go sideways. I got to go. It's like Chris Ryan worked in a Newberry Comics. I can trust him. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Fennessy, son of a cop. I can trust that guy. <laughs> and so on and so on. Uh, what else would you, What else uh, aged the best for you? Uh, I'm a, I love Chicago. So it's just mm. great to see real Chicago out here. I mean, they, they had to shoot it in a very particular way because Chicago's architecture changes so much that yeah. it, it, there was a lot of like modern building going on, but they shot like a lot of it over like in a three block radius. And then they dressed certain areas of downtown or, you know, Miracle Mile or whatever to shoot. Uh, so I love that. Um, I love, we talked about like the slightly smoothed over mammotisms, which is like, it's got mammoth where it's like, I need your help. I am asking you for help, that kind of yeah. stuff. And uh, I, this is one of my favorite Morricone scores. Yeah. You know, he's got, he's got a bunch of, of, of big ones, especially the Westerns. But I think this one is the opening credit sequence music and the big sweeping romantic score are just both incredible. I had him in the next category, the Slow Ride Award for Best Needle Drop. It's weirdly the opening theme. When it just the credits, when it starts, and it's just it's just fucking kicking ass. Yeah. What'd you have for the Big Kahuna Burger Award for Best Food or Drink Performance? <sighs> I actually left this blank unless you want to use just the liquor bottles for. No, I got this. So I was wondering whether or not. I know that, uh, I don't know if you noticed Capone's Breakfast in Bed. Yeah. Where it's OJ, coffee, and the papers. And I was wondering if maybe you should start having Ben bring you Breakfast in Bed, where he brings you OJ, co coffee, and then prints out Hoops Hype for you. <laughs> he prints out the Hoops Hype rumor page for you to read. Shane Larkin re-signed with Israel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, solid. The Great Shot Gordo Award. A lot of nominees here. I mean, the opening barbershop scene is a pretty great shot, but he's a lot of those. What was your favorite shot? 
I have the um just to get movie nerdy here, the split diopter shot, which is basically where you have like these two focal points in a shot. So in the church, mm. there's the low angle shot of them talking, but then when they cut, there's a shot where Costner's fully in focus and uh to his side, Connery's fully in focus. And it's just awesome. It's yeah. just a great use of that of that of that technique. The Butch's Girlfriend Award for the weak link of the film. Gee, I wonder what you're gonna pick. Man, it, this is a rough time for these characters, the 80s, where it's like, we got to work in a wife. Well, he's married. You got to have some scenes with them. And they, they just don't even try. And poor Patricia Clarkson, who's actually a good it's her actress. First movie. It's her yeah, first movie. Yeah, she's got nothing to do. I mean, there, there's no reason for her to be in this movie. I'll make the case for it. Okay. It It's the counterpoint to... Capone at the opera, Capone in his hotel, Capone getting his haircut is Elliot's this hayseed with this very plain life, very like wholesome life. And those are the two like moral poles that were being pulled between. And if you don't have Elliot's home life and you don't have this woman giving him carrot sticks to take to work or whatever, you don't really understand why he's such a square, you know? Then make those scenes better. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Dave was off that, Dave. You know, he, he was, I don't know what happened. It was almost like he sketched out the scenes and he was like, I'll go back later and make her more interesting. And then just ran out of time and started doing House of Games. Like, oh shit, I never did anything about the wife. It's yeah, bad. You think that's how it worked. <laughs> What's age the worst? Connery's accent, we mentioned. Um, it's when, whenever there's like worst accents in the history of movies lists, it's always on there. It's been voted the worst accent, the whole thing. Um, the movies look, I, you could probably take 12 minutes out of this movie somewhere. So I have the, I actually have the, the second scene. So it opens up and it has Capone in the barber chair. And then there's like another five minute scene of the kid getting blown up. Yep. And I personally, like after the first time you see this movie, I'm kind of like, I got it. Capone's a bad guy. Right. And it really, it takes like 15 minutes for this movie to get going at all. I mean, really, it doesn't get going until Connery says he's in. Or the first time we see Connery, I get. But I I think the first, one of the reasons this is a great rewatchables is if you're jumping in 20, 25 minutes in, that's actually the best time to do it because you didn't really miss much. So I would say that. That that brings us to the Anchorman flute pre-bake. Oh, I have one more. What's age the worst? Oh, go. Uh, Al Capone's understanding of advanced analytics (laughs) during that baseball speech. (laughs) It's a lot of really like outmoded ideas about what we know is winning baseball. This is all this chemistry teamwork stuff. It's like yeah, it's I, like Mike Wilbon on PTI in two thousand three talking about the Yankees. And it's like when the guy who's like teamwork, team. It would have been amazing if he was like Vorp, yeah. win shares. <laughs> have you looked at Bill Dickey's Vorp? It's amazing. Anchorman flew. P-Break Award. I really think you could come into this movie the moment Connery shows up and you're probably fine. Just take a long 15-minute pee before that, yeah. Was there a better title for this movie? I say no. I have the Chicago Way as an alt. Hmm. I like the Untouchables. Untouchables is pretty great. Plus, they use it in the movie. Yeah. Best quote. I have what the hell you got to die of something. What do you have? I have like basically that entire the Chicago way speech that Connery gives, but my runner up, which I guess goes in, I, I have the Chicago way speech. Is okay. he, 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 he brings a knife, you bring a gun, you send one of his, he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. 
A book about medals award for belatedly best quote. We should mention Amy Brenneman is in The Old Man with Jeff Bridges, basically reenacting another terrible relationship that she shouldn't be in. Why are you so interested in what I do, lady? It's, it's now the 72-year-old man version of that. Um, my pick for this is, you married? Nice to be married, huh? <laughs> Costler slips that in. Yeah. I, I think that's why they kept all the wife stuff in because they wanted to point out, like, this guy just likes being married and having a kid and doesn't really want to go down this road. I just wish the wife scenes had been better. What do you have for this? I have... Um... I have the the line that happens between Ness and Stone when Stone slides to save the baby carriage and and Elliot's like you got him and he's like got him and he's like take him That's a good one All right the Stephen A Smith hottest take award What do you got Chris I uh, I I think that those guys basically sentenced Oscar to death and I think that Elliot Ness is a bad coach in that regard. He's not putting his playmakers in position to make plays. Why do you take the accountant and have him on witness duty? Right. We already know that Stone is a great shot. He's a tough guy from the South Side. Why are you putting the guy who's like, I work with ledgers, but yeah, I'll guard the most wanted man in Chicago from the entire Chicago mafia? Bad job, Elliot. Yeah, it's like when Doc Rivers won the <laughs> 2008 title. No, when he won the 2008 title, but I could go back and nitpick on 95 things. Like ultimately, he catches Capone. But yeah, but yeah, it cost him two of his guys. Him. He lost two guys. It was a ton of extra money. I'm with you. My what's hottest your, take. What's yours? Yeah. I think this was Costner's greatest movie year. I went through his IMDb. And he has this and No Way Out. I think No Way Out is exceptional. I think it's one of the best kind of non-action action action thrillers we've had in the last 35 years. Just it fucking moves. It's just really good. There's great actors in it. Um, It's got a good twist. And the fact that he had that and Untouchable same year, you go through the IMDb, every year it's like either he has one good movie in the year or it's like two good movies, but one of them wasn't good. And I think... Looking back, this is probably my favorite year for him. I wonder if there's like a, it's not a movie year, but it's like a 12-month period that's better than this. Like, I would probably do Field of Dreams and Bull Durham right. o- over that. but Two different years. Yeah, it's two different years. Yeah. Casting What Ifs. This was an interesting one for me. De Palma wanted Don Johnson for Elliot Ness. And I think this would have been an incredible Don Johnson role. And I love Costner and I love Don Johnson. Those are two of my guys. I think Don Johnson would have done really well in this role. And this is a real like sliding doors moment. Yeah. That Johnson really doesn't do this. And that, this was like actually weirdly like it was, it's from half ass internet research, but Armani recommended Johnson because he's he was dressing him on Miami Vice. We so did George- another movie that Don Johnson couldn't do because they wouldn't let him out of the Miami Vice deal. Remember, there's been a, he's been in a couple. But wasn't almost he done Miami it. Vice by '87? No, he went all the way through to '90. They wouldn't let him out of his contract to be a movie actor, and he was getting offered all these Kevin Costner parts, basically. So t- tough one for Don Johnson because this is like, what's your role in this? You're you're supposed to look handsome and be charming and maybe smoke some some long cigarettes. Elliot Ness is definitely smoking if Don Johnson's in this movie. Yes. 
Mickey Rourke also allegedly turned down the role of Elliot Ness, which I believe because I think he was a pretty hot actor at that point. I think it's a completely different movie with him and I don't think it works. Angel Heart having a crazy chicken blood sex with Lisa Bonet was really where he should have Much landed in 1987. Speed, yeah. yeah. So there's this whole De Niro thing where De Niro didn't take it and they had Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins was going to be Al Capone. Then all of a sudden De Niro decided he wanted to take it and De Palma mailed Hoskins 200000 which is his contract, with a thank you. Sorry, you didn't get the movie. Hoskins calls up De Palma and says, are there any more films you don't want me to be in? He was like delighted. <laughs> he just made $200,000. Um, so those are three pretty good casting what-ifs. Yeah, I mean, there this, this like a lot of movies from the mid-'80s is when you do any looking into like who was up for this part is all like it's 15 guys who are all up for this it's Keaton I don't Gibson, I don't believe it all that yeah. stuff it sounded like Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones were a little bit more seriously considered for Ness than the the Gibson Keaton crowd and then there is some Brando smoke about Capone and I offering think it's him all... like five million for for two weeks work oh interesting I put a lot of weight into the premiere because if any reporting was going to happen on any of that stuff, I feel like it would have been in there. And yeah. they made it seem like, um, you know, once once a couple of the choices didn't work out, it was Costner. Yeah. And they had gotten this inside intel on how good Costner was and that was it. So it's tough. when Whenever we do these rewatchables, we're always trying to figure out what's real, what's fake. And it does seem like people go on the internet, they'll go on Wikipedia, IMDb, whatever, and they'll just take whoever the famous actors were or actresses for whatever role at the time and just be like, yeah, Sharon Stone, Sandra Bullock, and you never know what to believe. The Don Johnson, Mickey Work stuff is definitely true. The Bob Hoskins thing yeah. is true. Yeah. Let's, uh, we'll take a break and come back with the other acting words. This episode is brought to you by Jersey Mike's Subs. Jersey Mike's uses only the highest quality meat sliced right in front of you, piled high with the freshest toppings. It is a Jersey Mike thing. My favorite is number 13, the Italian. Love the Italian. I'm half Italian. I like Italian subs. I especially like Italian subs made in good places. Like Jersey Mike's, planning your summer picnic, backyard adventure, or beach day? Well, Jersey Mike's. They have you covered with everything you need to beat the summer heat. They have your favorite summer sub combo. They have everything you want at Jersey Mike's. A sub above. Order on the app today or visit jerseymikes.com to learn more. Great app, by the way. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm. And you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, it's a certified bee corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet you can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified bee corporation and gives their hens the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. All right, it's time for one of our favorites, the Ruffalo Hannah Rubinek Partridge Overacting Award. They knew and they let it happen. Don't you call me lady. I come in here, I give these things to you. Give me all you got. 
this and give me all you got i treated you like a son you fucking stab me in the heart fuck you you go first, because I'll be interested to see if we have the same one. I have a pretty random one, which is the the bow tie gangster who holds the bookkeeper hostage in the train station. <laughs> He's pretty bad, yeah. What the? See, I'm walking out with the bookkeeper, and the bookkeeper and me are driving away. <laughs> or else he dies. He dies, <laughs> and you ain't got nothing. He's pretty like, bad. You've got one scene in this movie and you just, you push it into the red. You're going for it. I have De Niro for the scene when, when he's yelling, you got nothing, nothing. You don't got a thing, you punk. You know, fuck, you got nothing. There's not a lot of talk in a bed. You're here because you got nothing. You got nothing in court. You don't got the bookkeeper. You got nothing. Nothing. And if you were a man, you would have done it now. You don't got a thing, you punk. He's just, he dials it up in an unusual De Niro way. He usually yeah. doesn't go over the top like that. I, it's a little like when Pacino is in Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy and was a little too over the top as Dick Tracy. And it was like, eh, are we sure this is good? De Niro has a couple moments as Al Capone where I'm like, wow, he really. He blew it out here. Yeah, kind of blew it out. Un uncharacteristic for him. I also have a Frank Nitty's death dive as overacting. Ah! Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had that in Nicky picking nits. It's not yeah. their fault. It's the mid eighties, but the the technology they had for somebody falling to their death was so bad back then. Like Can Alan Rickman and Die Hard's another one. If word. they had done that in Departed, if they had done that with Martin Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> well, the worst one's Die Hard, right? Yeah. Best that guy. There's a ton of them. Yeah. Richard Bradford, the guy with the super white hair who's a bad guy and a bunch of stuff. Our guy, Don Harvey, who ended up in We Own the City 35 years later. He's one of the rookie cops with Costner. Billy Drago's the bad guy. Charles Martin Smith, I think it's Charles Martin Smith. I don't even he's think Charles he's Martin that guy. Smith. Yeah. He had a nice little run and some stuff. He was a big part in Starman. I'm going to go with either Jack Kehoe but my personal choice, my favorite, moron number two from Midnight Run. <laughs> yeah, the two guys, and Farina says, is this moron number one? <laughs> Put moron number two on the phone. I don't know if that guy was moron number one or moron number two. He's the one that they have the fake boxing match next to the phone booth. And he's in this as one of the bad guys. And he's one of my favorite that guys. Oh, my God. So I have Chelsea Ross, who plays Ed in Major League. Yeah, he's the, a graduated that guy. The junk He's baller. from Hoosiers and all yeah. that stuff. And yeah. then I also have uh, Brad Sullivan, who's, uh, tell me what you want to know, that guy in yeah. Canada. He's in just a ton of stuff. Deanne Waiters, De Niro is Capone. He's eligible. Billy Drago is Nitty. Or the baby. Ooh. Yeah. Great job by the baby. Uh, yeah. I mean, looks at the ceiling. Seems like it like does what it's asked Some to do. Some wonderment. Yeah. Did you know that's the stuntman's son? Mm, not surprised. Yeah. I I am actually in an upset. I'm going with Billy Drago. I think he's really good as the bad guy. Great face. I, I in, really hated him. In total agreement. Great. Recasting couch. What do you have? Remind me, are we doing this for Kirk? You can do whatever you want. You can do it for 1987, or you could say if they're doing this now, who's Elliot Ness? So if you want to make Ness 
a little bit more fucked up, a little bit more, a little darker. Do you do Richard Gere? Hmm. And is it a different movie if he doesn't have that wholesome Costner like, oh God, you got to be kidding me, like kind of thing. If it's Gear, it's probably rated R. And in one of the scenes with his wife, he's like rolling it over and it gets a little like he's definitely a little <laughs> more advanced than she is. <laughs> he's he's really getting ambitious in a way she didn't realize she was signing sure, up for. Sure. Or he's taking a crack at somebody else. I just think he's, he's with Stone's wife. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't feel like Garrett can play it straight in a movie like this. I'm just always going to expect him to have some sort of dark side. I let me throw this one at you. What if we had Gene Hackman in the Connery role? It's Are probably, we sure it's a worse movie? It's probably way more authentic, right? I mean, Hackman probably does the Irish accent. Yes. Brings all the same credibility, gravitas. He's Gene Hackman. A little I young? don't know. Is he a little young at, in 80s? Gene Hackman by 1985 was the same age for the next 28 years. That's I true. don't see any younger or older than he was in The Firm or or uh, the Will Smith movie. Oh, Enemy of the State? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like it. I, I, I like I mean, I can't not see Connery in this, but I like it. Yeah. Half fast internet research. De Niro said, I want one extra scene for my character and I want time to finish my commitment to the Broadway production of Cuba and his teddy bear. And he wanted to gain 30 pounds to play Capone. De Palma, who's talked about this movie a lot, said De Niro was very concerned about the shape of his face for the part. Hmm. According to Premier Magazine, De Niro made $1.5 million for 18 days of work, which was a lot back then. In preparing for his role as Elliot Ness, Costner met with former FBI agent untouchable Al Wallpaper Wolf to learn about Elliot Ness. What, what, what kind of name is Wallpaper? I love it, though. So the Canadian border never happened. Courthouse railway station shootouts never happened. Ness never killed Nitty. Died by suicide. Ness's unit had very little to do with Capone's final tax evasion conviction. Basically, the team from Winning Time was involved with the Untouchables. Right. They didn't really realize it yet. And then uh, the railway station shootout parodied Naked Gun 3, a movie that slipped through the cracks of history. A little bit, yeah. Apex Mountain. Costner, no. No. Prohibition in movies? Uh, is it? It's Prohibition during The Sting, isn't it? Yeah, that Sting wins. Sting was a bigger movie. But, I mean, it's not the focus of the Sting, but it yeah, is but in the still, Sting. It's yeah. a Prohibition movie. I'm with you. Andy Garcia, no. Marriage? Marriage seems so hopeful in this movie with the Ness family. Is there an Apex Mountain for marriage? <laughs> 1930s marriage? Kramer versus Kramer? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Capone? You go with this or you go Al Capone's Secret Vaults. Or you go with Boardwalk with Empire. Or Rivera. Oh, Boardwalk it's Empire. Stephen Graham and Boardwalk Empire, yeah. No, though. I think it's this. I agree. De Palma? No. I'm also going to say no. I don't think so. I think that it, it depends. I mean, like, I guess this is a very successful, well-done movie, but I think I think in some ways Mission Impossible is even even yeah, if you're going big, If you're going big-budget movie, it's Mission Impossible. If you're going peak of his career, it's, I think it's Blowout. If you're talking about the 
admittedly ambiguous category of Apex Mountain, when did he have the most juice? Yeah. I think it's somewhere between Dress to Kill and Blow Out. Because right. Dress to Kill was a huge movie, and after that, he could make any movie he wanted. So his next two, he makes Blow Out, he makes Scarface. Like, those are pretty strange, big swings. I guess Scarface wasn't strange because it was a famous movie, but um, two movies that I, I think were pretty ambitious for the time. So I would, I would say no for De Palma, no for right. De Niro. How about older Connery? So it's this, The Rock. Anything from the 80s or you could go The Rock. Or you could I, go Finding Forrester. You're the man now, dog. I, I think it's Rocktober for me. Okay. Still waiting on that one, by the way. Mid, I heard you. Mid-80s summer Chicago movies. Here are nominees. Movies filmed in Chicago in the mid-80s. Running Scared. About Last Night, Ferris Bueller, Above the Law, Adventures of Babysitting, Midnight Run, Big Town, and The Untouchables. What a run for Chicago. Jesus, Chicago? Get, get God the whole, damn. I guess John Hughes really just put Chicago on his back there for a few years. I think right? it's Ferris. Ferris uses Chicago the best. Yeah, me too. Although running scared. Are you and Van and I are going to do that soon? You're in I, on that? I'm going to get my airbrushed t-shirt like uh, Gregory Hines has. That's my personal apex mountain just in life when they play Michael McDonald as yeah. Crystal and, and uh, Gregory Hines are, are roller skating. That's what it. A, That's everything like I want from a movie. The weirdest part of any movie ever is when they're just the, like, these guys go to the Bahamas for 20 minutes. They go to the Bahamas and it's a whole movie that I just want to be there with them for the next five years. Can they just run a bar in the Bahamas? Can that just be the movie? Yeah. Do we have to go back to Chicago? <laughs> Was this their Hall of Fame plaque movie? Is a sub question for the for apex mountain is it for De Palma I, you well, can make I, the case I was gonna say it is could you make the argument is it this or because he wins the Oscar for this I guess James Bond is for Connery but he does yeah, win the Bond Oscar has for to be for it has Connery. to be Bond I think for De Palma you could make the case this is the movie he made that the most people saw other than Scarface I the answer is either this or Scarface yeah what's the matter you need the yayo <laughs> <laughs> best racehorse name from the movie I'll give you Untouchable or Dago Bastard I can't have Screaming Irish Pig <laughs> you can have Screaming Irish Pig <laughs> Untouchable is a great horse name though sure. I was thinking yeah Dago Bastard Dago Bastard here's Dago Bastard down the stretch I'm half Italian I can make these jokes uh, Picky Nits why would Ness want a picture taken of his new crew during this time when he's suspicious of everybody and doesn't want to trust anyone at all? And he's like, yeah, photographer, come on in. Well, he trusts Scoop. He trusts that I journalist. Would, we just established that he doesn't trust anybody. And it's not for publication, right? So they claim. What if Capone gets the film? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter because like the cops are on these guys anyway and the cops are working for Capone. But I Fair. hear you. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird choice by Ness. Word flex. The, I think the baby is crying uncontrollably. It's weird. Three that, minutes into the scene. It's weird that I'm going back to my Oscar getting killed thing. It's weird that Ness and Malone are just like walking around smoking cigars while they're transferring this witness. And they're yep. just like, I had a kid. How about that? Right. Should be a little more premium placed on. We got to get this witness out. Somebody's going to be trying to take him down. Yeah. The baby's crying three steps down. It's yes. a lot of bouncing in the 1930s carriage. Come on. Any other picking nits? Yeah. So in the 
train station shootout, did you notice how many sailors get killed? Right. What's up with that? Like, why did they? I mean, I guess I could. I, I appreciate those guys' dedication to like saving that baby. But if if I'm a sailor and my first my first buddy gets mowed down by the the mafia, I'm like, ah, oh, god. That I, let's just hope that carriage gets to the bottom of the stairs on its own. Yeah. You know. And then uh, my only other picking day is the Mounties get mowed down. Oh <laughs> like, yeah, come on. They're like a slow trot with revolvers into all these guys with Tommy guns. It's just the, the fact that all of them get across the bridge unscathed is surreal. I have a picking nits just for the 1930s. How was it this hard to take down Al Capone? He was like the biggest mobster they had. Because he had the support of the people because people wanted to drink. He just paid it, everybody. Yeah. Come on. Do better, everybody back then. Probably unanswerable questions. I didn't really have any because this is based on a true story and we hit all the ones. There's that. I, this left me. I, yeah, I wasn't like, wait, how did this actually happen? I mean, it's, it's pretty believable that this guy didn't file his tax returns. The only thing, I guess, like I'm surprised they didn't even kick around the idea of an Untouchables 2 and just go completely, you know, like think about the fugitive worked and then we, they talked themselves into U.S. Marshals, which is a pretty flawed movie that I've probably seen 20 times. Um, but I'm surprised they didn't talk themselves into Untouchables 2 around like right heading into World War II. They tried to do, they tried to get De Palma to do Rise of Capone. They tried to get him to do or a prequel, film. yeah, yeah, and I, I think he he kicked it down the road a little bit, but didn't do it. Well, next category: sequel, prequel, prestige TV, all black cast or untouchable. This would be pretty good prestige TV. It would be expensive, but at the same time, Boardwalk Empire stepped on at least a little bit. I don't know. I I'm leaning toward untouchable, but you could talk me into prestige TV. So one of the great unmade projects or at least the one of the unmade projects from the last decade or so that I really, really wanted to see happen was a movie um, called Torso, which was based on a graphic novel by a guy named Brian Michael Bendis, I think. And Fincher was going to make it, and it was Ooh. about Elliot Ness hunting the first serial killer in America. Mm. Say no more. I know. And then Fincher basically did Mindhunter. I don't know what happened to that, but I was always really interested in that one. Great title. Would this movie be better with Wayne Jenkins, Danny Trejo, Catherine Hahn, Steve Buscemi, Sam Jackson, J.T. Walsh, or Philip Baker Hall? I had Buscemi. <laughs> I'm just imagining him being like, God damn, Oscar, I didn't know I was even super cop. <laughs> right before Oscar gets his throat slit. <laughs> and a motherfucking brick. And a motherfucking pint of Jameson. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this prohibition's got you sideways, Oscar. Oh man, yeah. With the answer is probably Wayne Jenkins for Come every on, if action Wayne movie. Wayne Jenkins was Stone. If when they pick him out at the Academy and it's just oh like, my god, you're it's right. Wayne it's Jenkins Wayne Jenkins. Day? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, Wayne Jenkins Day would have been incredible in this. Just want to ask her who gets it. So you're still giving it to Connery. Make the Costner case for me. I can tell you want to do it. I don't think he was good enough compared to the '87 candidates. Like that's the, I think that was the Michael Douglas Wall Street year. And I don't think he would have won Connery. The category was weaker, but I still feel like Albert Brooks could have won. Maybe Mamet. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I mean, I don't know if I, I, I would maybe. Oh, oh music. Craig, Craig says music. Morricone. Yeah. Good, good job, producer Craig. Thank you. Way to go, Craig. Yeah. Morricone. Great. What do you have for best double feature choice for this movie? I have it with Scarface. Oh. Yeah. Um, just two incredible 
De Palma crime epics. I have it with uh, No Way Out. It's a Costar 1987 doubleheader. Do No Way Out first, Untouchable second. Be the That's way good. to go. Well curated. So the next award is the Indy in Red Zuantne Award for the next day, which we know what happens the next day. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist this a little bit. Walk me through the next 10 minutes after Capone beats the guy to death with a baseball bat. Like, is dessert off at this point? Right. Like everybody just quietly leaves. What are the next? What are the next six minutes look like? Yeah, is there like a sitting room where people go for cognac and just like Jesus Christ, did you fucking see <laughs> Al? Dinner got out of hand. <laughs> Al killed the guy. <laughs> it's like Anchorman. Hey, you got anybody going to the speakeasy? Uh, I just won a bunch of money on screaming Irish pig at, at the uh, at the Belmont. <laughs> Honey, what happened to your suit? Why is there blood on it? Oh, man, Al killed the guy. It was fucking nuts, man. <laughs> just got really mad, hit a guy with a baseball bat. There's blood everywhere. And then we yeah. went to the speakeasy. Yeah, just I would love to know, like, deleted scene. <laughs> Next seven minutes. Um, What piece of memorabilia would you want from this movie? Ironically, the baseball bat is my answer. That's what an amazing thing to have. It's like, what's that? That's the baseball bat from The Untouchables. What do you have? Uh, I have the St. Jude charm. That uh, hmm. Connery has seems seems pretty cool. Patron saying lost causes. I like that. Coach Finstock award for best life lesson. I'll give you two choices: trust nobody, or if you're afraid of getting a rotten apple, don't go to the barrel. Get it off the tree. Uh, I really I, like that one. I like Darryl the Morris should be thinking that way. I also thanks. I also <laughs> like the uh, the when he goes like trust nobody. He's like, well. What do you mean, trust nobody? You just asked me to trust you. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was good. Who won the movie? Who do you have? Kind of wide open. I have Connery. I think Connery is a very good choice. I respect it. But I actually think it's Costner because he had to prove that he could be the leading man in a movie like this. And once he did that, the next 10 years fall into place for him in a really dramatic way. And he becomes one of the most important, you know, big picture, big market actors that we've had. He's one of the, like the seven, eight, I don't know what the complete list is where you could just put him in anything and people would go. There's just like 10 other movies where you can say Costner won the movie. I just think that Connery in a, in a pretty, not small part, but like it's it's like a part that goes into a slot. It's a, definitely a supporting role. Like is just so magnetic in this. Let's bring in producer Craig, and he can have the tie-breaking vote. Craig, who do you have? Uh, the only reason why I would say it's Connery is because I don't have a huge relationship with Connery, and I feel like I know Costner so much more. So every time I get to see Connery in a movie, I love him a lot, and I'm like, wow, he's so great. I wish I watched more movies with him. So every time I see him in a movie that you guys pick, he always jumps off the screen to me. So I'm gonna pick him. Yeah, that's good. We take Connery for granted. Yeah. I think that's a good piece. He is kind of a one-on-one. He's handsome dude. What's great for him in this movie, because he's bald, he's wearing all the hats. So he it makes him look 10 years younger he's right the, away. The Bryson DeChambeau hat. Oh, yeah. yeah. He looks great. <laughs> great clothes yeah. on Connery in this movie in general. What'd you think of the movie? You never saw it, Craig. No. Uh, I was really excited to see it. I, I liked it a lot. I thought, I thought kind of what Chris said is there's like four just like awesome scenes that really capture you. I did think it was a little cheesy at times. I was kind of surprised. Like some of the Costner lines, like even at the end, like, what are you going to do next? And he's like, have a drink. It's like a little Hollywoody, yeah. uh, much more so than like a lot of the other mob movies that I like. It, know at and the love. end of the movie, it, we didn't do the third act meltdown. And I would not say that Costner has a third act meltdown 
But he does start doing a lot of like he's in the car, like kind of Hollywood lines down the, the down the the stretch here. Yeah, we should have. I should have put that one in there. The third act meltdown. You're right, because yeah, I don't. I don't love the last like five minutes of this movie. I think you're supposed to feel like Ness has compromised himself and is like leaning into it. But at the same time, it's still Costner. So you're like, this guy's such an apple pie dude. Like, why is he bragging about throwing this dude off a roof? I never really bought, to be honest, that he goes so quickly from like family man, follow the law. And then like the guy threatens his family in a car. And now he's like, I'll kill anyone. Right. I thought it was just a pretty big leap. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good nitpick. It's hard. I've seen this movie so many times. I almost can't look at it objectively, like with the fresh set eyes, which I think Craig's right. But part of it is 1987. Some of the stuff was a little corny. You know, you can almost sort of that in the what's age the worst. Like they didn't even blink twice. Like all the stuff with the wife would just never happen now. Yeah. You know, they would make sure they had some sort of something for her to do. No actress would want that part either. Also, there's one line that I loved when they're down at the police academy and they talk to Stone, but they talk to that other guy first and he's just like babbling and oh, yeah. can't say anything. And then he walks away and Connery goes, that's the next chief of police right there. <laughs> yeah, that was a great one. <laughs> that's a good book about medals line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. This was fun. Produced by Craig Horlbeck as always. Chris, your dirty Irish pig. It's great to see you. <laughs> That was The Untouchables. We'll be back next week. A lot of rumors about our July 4th movie, by the way. Percolate. I don't know if you've read anything in the trades. What are are some of... Give me a hint. There's going to be a text, and I think you guys are going to be surprised. Okay. For the July 4th movie. I've been scouting it for a while. In person? It's very possible. This one should be in person if we do it. But okay. it's one of the uh, it's one of the ones we've discussed for a long time. Oh, interesting. So, all right, that's it for the rewatchables. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.